We are going to begin a series in the book of Ephesians, and uh, it's something that's been on my heart for a long time. I'm looking forward to going through the book of Ephesians, and uh, it's going to take us through the summer and also into the fall a little bit. We're going to go through it portion by portion, and you got to know something about when you read a book of the Bible, especially one of the letters that Paul writes to the churches, they are meant to be read as letters, and so they are supposed to be read in one sitting from, from front to back. But we're going to be building on each sermon as we go, which means you can't miss a single day of church for the rest, for the next five months, okay? No, I'm just kidding. No pressure, okay? But uh, we are going to be building on uh, on this series as we go through it. And uh, how many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon before? Anybody been to the Grand Canyon? What are some words that you would describe, uh, that you would use to describe the Grand Canyon? Majestic? Deep, awesome, big. Yeah, my wife and I, um, we took our family uh, to a family reunion happening in St. George, Utah a couple years ago, and uh, the two of us had never been to the Grand Canyon, and so as we were going through Las Vegas, we decided uh, instead of making the four-hour drive to the Grand Canyon, we would take a helicopter tour into the Grand Canyon and have a picnic at sunset in the Grand Canyon. And I'm telling you, it is the only way to experience the Grand Canyon. My wife and I, we, we, we bit the bullet. We paid way too much for this tour. But we flew into the Grand Canyon. And I don't know what I was expecting. But nothing could prepare me for what I saw. It was just the most majestic, uh, amazing, awesome, deep, big view that I've ever seen. And uh, it was in that moment I, I, I felt particularly small. And I was told that we had only flown into the first six miles of 277 miles of the Grand Canyon. This, the Grand Canyon is, is massive. And if you've been to Dry Falls, you know what I'm talking about. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember, I, I think I, I saw Dry Falls before I saw the Grand Canyon. So when I saw Dry Falls, I went, oh, this must be what the Grand Canyon is like. <laughs> oh, boy, was I wrong. But Dry Falls is still beautiful. We take, every time somebody comes to visit us here in Ephrata, we take them to Dry Falls because it's the one cool thing to see. Uh, or we, you know, we actually went and we visited the historical museum for the first time a couple weeks ago. That was pretty cool. I, my kids liked it. I liked it a lot. I'm going to do it again. Uh, I got way off topic right there. But, you know, I was given a new appreciation for just how big God is, how majestic, how beautiful God is. And as we begin this in-depth journey through the book of Ephesians, um, this book, we have to keep in mind, this book is sometimes referred to by biblical scholars as the Grand Canyon of Scripture. It is the Alps of the New Testament is is sometimes what it's referred to. And it's because of its grand themes, because of how it portrays the majesty of Jesus. This book is unique because it portrays Jesus in a very special way. In fact, one of the most notable chapters in the book of Ephesians is the final chapter, chapter 6. And it has a lot to do about spiritual warfare and the armor of God. And it reveals to us that our fight isn't with people, our struggle It's not with people, but it's with powers and authorities in the spiritual realm. But before you get to the last chapter, we have to understand how this book is written. This book is brilliantly written in two distinct sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 3. And in this first section, Paul writes about the Christian's position in Christ. How we stand 
in the eyes of God. It's all about doctrine. It's all about theology. It's about understanding where we stand in the eyes of God and the blessings that we have to inherit. And the second section, chapters four through six, is all about the Christian's practice, how we are to walk out our faith and how a Christian is supposed to live, how a follower of Jesus is expected to walk. And there's a progression that we notice here that goes from position to practice, where we stand to where we walk. And it's very intentional because here's the truth. Before the church is called to war, the church must learn how to walk. And before being called to walk, she must know where she stands. Before you are called to do things for God, before you are called to war, before you are called to step out in faith, you are first called to learn how to walk, and you first must understand how God sees you. Identity comes first. Identity is the foundation. Everything we do must flow out of the realization of who we are in Jesus. You know, I grew up in church, and many people, uh, they grow up in church hearing plenty about the things that God has asked them to do. We know that we're supposed to be kind to others. We're supposed to love our enemies. We're supposed to be sober-minded, stay committed to our spouses, teach our kids about Jesus. We're called to tell the truth at all times, to serve, to attend church, to tithe, to serve at work like we're serving unto the Lord. But all those things are great. But in order to succeed at any of the things that God is calling us to do, we must first be confident in who we are. Everything comes from identity. It's the foundation. If you're taking notes, write this down. God cares far more about who you are becoming than what you can do for him. He cares far more about what he is birthing inside of you, the things that he is trying to birth inside of you. He cares far more about who you are becoming than what you can do for him. Some of us need to stop and slow down and look inside and say, am I becoming the person that Christ wants me to become? Am I allowing him to do a work in my heart or am I busy in myself with things that make me feel good and look righteous? God wants to do a work inside of you. As a parent, I want my kids to make a difference in the world, just like all parents. I want them to show compassion and forgiveness to others. And more importantly, I want them, in order to do those things, they need to have a healthy self-awareness and a self-worth, and they need to have emotional intelligence. And here's the thing, is we can't love unconditionally unless we first know that we are loved unconditionally. You cannot forgive others unless you first know that you have been forgiven. It comes from a place of identity. We can't make a difference in the world until we're first secure enough to take our eyes off of ourselves and off of our needs and on to the needs of others around us. And my job as a parent isn't to provide my kids with opportunities to expand their skills and their abilities so they can do something with their life. No, those things are going to come naturally when they discover what they love, and they're going to pursue the things that they love. They're going to acquire the skills that are needed for those things. My job as a good parent is to provide a solid foundation that they can build their lives upon. When they leave our house, I hope that they know that mom and dad love them unconditionally, and they can always come to us for help. I want their identity to be solid. I want them to be sure of who they are in Christ before they leave the house. God wants his church to first realize who she is. And as followers of Jesus, we need the truth of who we are to seep into our bones. 
We need it to become our foundation. So the question is, who am I? What is the foundation of my identity? In a moment, we're going to talk about our identity from the first couple verses of Ephesians. But first, I want to just develop real quickly an understanding of who Paul was and who it was that he was writing to. Who were the Ephesians? Uh, where were they? What were they going through at the time? So let's first talk about Paul. If you're new to the Bible or unfamiliar with Scripture, Paul, his story can be found in the book of Acts. And we read that Paul's original name was Saul, and he was a Pharisee that greatly persecuted Christians. And he was even present for the stoning of Stephen, who was the first martyr. And Paul hated Christians with all of his heart until... He had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, and Jesus blinds him and instructs him to receive prayer from a man named Ananias, where he received back his sight. And after Paul's conversion, this devout Jewish leader becomes the primary missionary to Gentile lands. Gentiles are anybody who's not a Jew, so that's probably you and I. I know for a fact I'm a Gentile. And Paul becomes the primary missionary to Gentile lands. And we see that Paul makes multiple missionary journeys throughout the known world. And his first visit to Ephesus is recorded in Acts chapter 18, uh, verses 19 through 21. And we see that he only stays for a short time, maybe one to three months. And then he leaves, and and he leaves the growth of the church in the hands of Aquila and Priscilla, his companions. And Paul's second visit to Ephesus is recorded in Acts 19. And this is where he stays for over two years. And Paul in this two years develops deep relationships with the people in Ephesus and his ministry has a profound impact on the city. He does extraordinary miracles. He casts out demons. He preaches the gospel. In fact, uh, it's in the city of Ephesus that we read uh, Paul doing this. Acts 19, 11 through 12, it says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. When Paul touched articles of clothing and those articles of clothing were taken to the sick and the demon possessed, the people were set free. This is a profound impact that Paul is having on the city of Ephesus. And he develops these deep relationships with believers over the two years And it wasn't until eight years later, while he's imprisoned in Rome, that he actually wrote the letter to the Ephesians in about 62 AD. Well, where is Ephesus? I got a map of Ephesus, a map of Turkey here on the screen. Ephesus was a seaport city on the western coast of Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And politically, Ephesus was the capital of the senatorial province of Asia Minor. And commercially, it was the largest trading center in Asia Minor. It was very influential. Paul was very strategic when he brought the gospel to Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was very diverse in religions as well. Uh, Many people in Ephesus worshipped a pantheon of Greek and Roman gods, but primarily they worshipped the goddess Artemis, who was the goddess of the hunt or wild animals, and even she was considered the, the goddess of childbirth. And she was known uh, by the Romans as the goddess Diana. 
Ephesus was also the location of the temple of Artemis. I think I have a picture of the temple as well. The temple of Artemis was one of the wonders of the world in its day. It was 450 feet by 255 feet, a massive architectural uh, accomplishment. And from people from all over the world would come to Ephesus to worship a pantheon of gods, including Artemis. <clears throat> and in fact, many historians believe that Ephesus may have been a center for sorcery and magic as well. Acts 19 records this incident where an evil spirit uh, jumps onto the seven sons of Sceva. The seven sons of Sceva approach a demon-possessed person, and they try to cast out the demon. But the demon looks at them and says, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? And he comes onto the seven sons of Sceva, and he beats the living daylight out of them. He beats them up. And uh, it says this in Acts 19, 19 through 20. It says, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. A drachma was a day's wage. So this is 50,000 days wages. This is how prevalent sorcery was in Ephesus. And so Paul's ministry was so effective. He had such a profound impact on the city that he even began running some silversmiths out of business. And these silversmiths would make these silver trinkets and items for idol worship. And as Paul continued his ministry in the city, people began to buy less and less silver items and they would run these silver craftsmen out of business. And in Acts chapter 19, we know of one silver craftsman who started a riot and he sees some of Paul's companions. And Paul, it says that he wanted to speak to the crowd, but the disciples urged him not to engage. And so Paul left Ephesus shortly after in the summer of 54 AD, but he left in Ephesus deep relationships with people that he had fostered for two years. And he had a profound impact as he shared the gospel with the city. And so we are going to read with those, with that context in mind, we're going to begin to go through this book. And, and as I said, we're going to build upon each other. And today, we're not going to get very far. In fact, we're going to get, uh, for some of you, it might be frustrating how not far we get. <laughs> but even with Paul's opening words, we see how he is establishing the identity of the church in Ephesus. He makes profound identity statements, even in his opening address. So with that, would you turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're just going to read the first two verses. My goodness, pastor, you're just going to preach on two verses? Yes, I am. Here we go. Next week is going to be a lot longer. In fact, Ephesians 3 through 14, which is what we're going to tackle next week, is actually in the Greek, one very, very long sentence. And so if you happen to read Ephesians 3 through 14 throughout the week, you, uh, you'll be amazed of how uh, this is just a really long run-on sentence. If Paul was in school, he'd probably get docked for some of a... Uh, no, he was a lot more brilliant than me. Here we go. Ephesians 1, 1 through 2, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, or to the saints in Ephesus... The faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, Pastor, you're going to preach on that this morning? You bet I am. 
Paul first greets the church in Ephesus with an acknowledgement of his God-given role in the church, that he is an apostle. An apostle is one who has seen the resurrected Jesus and someone who is actively planting and starting missional movements all over the known world. Paul recognizes that he is an apostle, someone who has seen the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And in the first verse, we also get a glimpse of a theme throughout the book of Ephesians. And we're going to talk about this theme next week. It's the theme of the sovereign will of God. That he has been selected by God to be an apostle. Paul acknowledges that God has chosen him. Out of all people, God has chosen him to be his primary voice of the gospel to Gentile lands. Now, let me ask yourself honestly this question. If you were God, would you have selected Paul, out of all people, to take the lead in sharing the gospel around the world? I think if you're honest, you'd say no. This man hated Christians. He was wreaking havoc on the church. He would be the last man on my list to take charge in sharing the gospel. It would be like choosing the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood to be your primary advocate for pro-life. It sounds impossible. It sounds like it could never be done. But the will of God has no limitations. There is no bounds on God's will. He chooses the underqualified. He chooses the one sitting on the bench. And he can even turn the hearts of people who are enemies of the gospel. His will is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. And he chose this man who hated Christians, was persecuting Christians, and he made him the Paul has contributed more to the New Testament than any other writer. And it's because God selected him and chose him in the midst of the wrong direction that he was headed. Think of this when we pray for people in positions of power in our country or in our city who may currently be opposed to the gospel. We might think that it's, we might think that it is impossible for them to have a change of heart, that they are just leading us in a, a very wrong direction and we can quickly choose sides against them. But pray that they would have a road to Damascus encounter. Pray that Jesus would meet them and would change their hearts and pray that God's will would truly be done in our country. In fact, I just want to take 30 seconds to pray for them right now. So would you pray with me? Father, we lift up our president to you. Jesus, we lift up our governor to you. We lift up the leaders in our nation who may currently be opposed to your gospel. We pray, Lord, that they would have a road to Damascus encounter, that they would be blinded in the midst of their steps and they would meet you face to face and understand that they have been going the wrong direction. They have been doing the wrong things, that they would repent of their ways. God, if you did it once, you can do it again. We believe that you are a God who can do miracles, and your will will be done no matter what. We trust you and we love you, but as your church, we pray for our leaders with with the expectant hope. God, we might be discouraged at times, but we know you can do anything. And if you agree with that, would you say amen? amen? Packed into these first two very short verses is a very robust understanding of who we are in Christ. So for the remainder of our time, I want to focus 
on how Paul describes the church in Ephesus. As we go throughout this letter, you can see the affection that Paul has for the church. He says, dear saints, dear holy people. Now, men, men in the room, have you ever written a love letter to your sweetheart before? Yeah? No? Nobody has done this? Am I the only one who's written a love letter to my... You guys, you need to step up your romance game. We're going to do a, we're going to be doing a, a romance series here pretty soon. We'll teach you how to write a love letter, okay? No, I honestly, I would be blushing cherry red if any of my letters made it out into the open. And so I, it will never happen. You will never see them. Right, Christina? You need to keep them close cuz they are corny. Let me tell you, they are corny. But I do remember when I'd write a letter to her, I'd like to change up my greeting. Sometimes it was just plain old dear Christina, but sometimes it was my dearest Christina. To the love of my life, to my smoochy poo dooby <laughs> baby, baby cakes. I would use the most outrageous titles. Now she's blushing. I would use the most outrageous titles in an attempt to describe how I felt about my girlfriend. And Paul... He spent years with the people in Ephesus, and you can sense his affection, but he isn't just giving the church a grandiose title. He isn't just giving them a term of endearment. No, he's addressing the church with the truth of how God sees them. This is who you are. Church, this is who you are. And I want to highlight three important identity statements in this address. Number one, number one, we have to understand that we are set apart. We are set apart. Perhaps you or someone that you know, maybe you've said this before, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Thank God that he saved me. But notice that Paul doesn't say, to the sinners in Ephesus, to the sinners saved by grace in Ephesus. No, he doesn't say that. He says, dear saints, to the holy people in Ephesus, to the ones who have been set apart, If you want to know where you stand in God's eyes, you can start by acknowledging that you are holy. You have been, number one, you've been made holy through the act of justification. We're going to get to these fancy words in a moment. And number two, God is continually making you holy through the work of sanctification. The Greek word for holy is hagios, and it means to be separated or to be set apart. What Paul is saying is we as the church, we've been set apart from sin and we are set apart or reserved for God's purposes and plans in our world. It's both something that has already happened and something that continues throughout our lives on earth. And Paul uses two different words that I just mentioned to describe, to describe this truth. Justification and sanctification. What do these words mean? Well, first in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where Paul uses these words in the same sentence. <clears throat> he just gives this long list of, of sins and wrongdoings. And then he says in verse 11, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Justification means to declare or render someone is righteous. It's to be in right standing with God. It's to be just as you ought to be in God's eyes. An easy way to remember this word. Think of the word, I've been justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. 
That's what that word means. When God looks at you, you've been justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned because the blood of Jesus has cleansed me, has washed me, he has set me apart, he has justified me. The second word, sanctification, it means to purify or to consecrate or to cleanse something. And it describes a lifelong process of becoming more and more like Jesus after your conversion. We're saved, we're justified, we're set apart. When God looks at us, you have been made righteous, but you are continually becoming more and more like Jesus. And that is the work of sanctification. This is in your notes as well. Justification sets people free from sin's penalty. Sanctification means being set free from sin's power. Justification is something that God does for us. Sanctification is what God does with us. He partners with us in sanctification. We, we surrender our lives to Jesus. We surrender our lives to God, and we say, God, take my life. I want to look more like Jesus. Help me to get rid of the things that don't belong. Help me to repent of the things I need to repent of. Make me look more like Jesus. God has already set you apart to be a blessing for the world by freeing you from the penalty of sin, which is eternal death. Praise God. You don't have to fear death anymore because guess what? You've already died. Your life is not your own anymore. And that frees you from worrying about yourself. Now you can take your eyes and put them on other people, put them on the Lord and thank him for what he has done. You've been justified. But God is also working alongside you to make you more like Jesus by separating you from sin and reserving you for his plans and his purposes. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul describes sanctification as this ongoing process. He says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that sanctification in this verse is an ongoing process in which we partner with God. Here's where it gets practical. Being holy... Being God's holy people means that even though we live in a secular world, we refuse to act like everyone else. Daniel is a great example of this. He was a Jewish prophet taken to Babylon to serve in the king's court. However, Daniel refused to eat and act like a Babylonian. And the problem with many Christians today is that we speak out against Babylon And we have lots of really bold opinions and say, well, this is what the Bible says. But we eat what everyone else is eating. And we do what everyone else is doing. And we watch what everyone else is watching. And we talk how everyone else is talking. And there is no separation. There is no difference. And we we take a moral high ground, but our habits and our attitudes and our behaviors don't look any different than the people around us. And our identity has to be rooted in the truth that God has set us apart from sin to be used for his will. We are God's holy people. We are his saints. You are the ones. When the world looks at you, they are supposed to see somebody different. They see the work of God in your life and say, I have to have what is on that person's life. It's obvious that they have been set apart. This is the foundation of our identity, identity, church. Firstly, you have been set apart. God has chosen you and set you apart from sin and reserved you for his purposes, for his will. You're set apart. 
The second statement that Paul makes in these first two verses is he says, in Christ. We are in Christ. To the church who is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul uses this phrase, in Christ, 164 times throughout the New Testament. The book of Ephesians, however, is unique because this phrase occurs nearly twice as many times as in Paul's other letters. But what does it mean to be in Christ? I mean, isn't Christ supposed to be in us? Aren't we taught that Jesus lives in, inside my heart? Jesus lives in me. So what is, what is he talking about when he says that I am in Christ? We are to be in Christ. And this has become a very mysterious topic for many scholars for many years. But he continues on. If we continue on in verse 3, he gives us a little bit more. In verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You see, Jesus is currently in the heavenly realms. He no longer is in human form on the earth, but he ascended to heaven. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he, Jesus, has access to all spiritual blessings. And Paul is saying that we too have access to every spiritual blessing because we are in Christ. Ephesians 2.6. He says, God raised us up with Christ. And get this. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? I'm right here. How can I be seated with Christ in heavenly realms? You have a spirit, church. And your spirit, through the work of the Holy Spirit, has been united with Christ. It's what baptism represents. That our spirit dies when we go into the water through the work of the Holy Spirit. And as we come out of the water, we are united with Christ in his resurrection. And we even share with him in his ascension. We are seated with him in heavenly places. When Paul tells the church that we are in Christ, he is saying that we have full access to what Jesus has access to because we are united with him. Think of it as oxygen, right? That we breathe the air of life. It's in us. It fills our lungs. And we, at the same time, we live in the air and we breathe the air. And it's the same thing with intimacy with Christ. Christ in us and us in Christ. Here's where this gets practical. So many Christians are waiting to die to experience heaven. Now we have lots of Christians that are just holding on with their golden ticket. Lord, I can't wait till this pain is over. I can't wait to see you face to face. And trust me, church, I'm in that boat. The, the longer our world continues the way it goes, I'm like, Jesus, just come back already. Let's all go to heaven together. I'm ready. Let's go. But so many Christians are waiting to die to experience heaven. But Jesus is inviting us to experience heaven right now by abiding in him. He even taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus desires that his church would look at life from his heavenly perspective and know, know that we are seated with him in the heavens and we can look at our life through his heavenly perspective. And let's apply this perspective to different areas of our life. Let's talk about our finances. Oh, pastor, don't you start talking about my money. Let's talk about our finances. We spend so much time worrying about our money, trying to get 
the next thing, trying to get more of it. We, we go into debt. We overspend. We, we spend so much of our life worrying about our finances, and we forget so quickly that you're not taking any of that with you when you die. Money is not eternal. So when you think of your money through Christ's perspective, if you're thinking of your finances in Christ, you can see that, that I need to have an eternal impact with my finite resources. How can I have, how can I use the resources that God has given me? For some of us, very limited resources. For some of us, it's a little bit more about how can I use the resources that God has given me to have an eternal impact and not worry about getting more for the sake of getting more, but making a true difference in the world around me. Think of our pain that we experience. We experience pain and loss. We just lost a, a, a member of our church, Vicky, a couple weeks ago. We had her wonderful memorial service. There was over 300 people in this building. We had to use the overflow. It was beautiful. She had such an impact on people. When we think of pain and loss... When we are in Christ and we see pain and loss through a heavenly perspective, we can see how temporary pain really is. Right? That, that this 80, 90, maybe 100 years, if we're lucky, this, this 100 years that we have here on earth is nothing compared to the trillions we're going to spend in eternity. We are going to live on. And so we can look at our pain here on earth as temporary when we're in Christ. But here's the other side of that, to that coin. Because we are seated with Christ in heaven, we have access to heaven's resources. We have access to the power of the Holy Spirit. Is there pain and death in heaven? No, there's not. And God's desire for his people is to live in health and freedom. I believe that's not a prosperity gospel. It's what Jesus says. I've come to give life. I've come to give it to the full. And what we can do is we have permission Because we're seated with Christ in heaven, we are in Christ, we have permission from the Father to ask his Holy Spirit for healing. And we can believe, I am seated with Christ. He has all the resources. He has everything I need. He has new body parts for me in heaven. Come on, he has healing for me in heaven that he wants to give me. That kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We can pray that and believe it. And at the same time, hold intention that sometimes... We continue on with pain in this world, but it's just temporary. But when we, when we are in Christ and we have this heavenly perspective, it changes how we look at our life, doesn't it? Think of your time. When uh, our lives, when we look at our lives with a heavenly perspective, we see just how short our life is in the scheme of eternity. And we think about our relationships. When we remain in Christ, not only can we love everyone better, But we also see the relationships that truly matter, our spouses, our kids, our church communities, that that God has placed people in your life and within your sphere to love and to cherish and to steward these relationships. And when you are in Christ, you see relationships differently as well. Paul says that we have been set apart. Paul says that we are in Christ. And thirdly, I want to end with this. Paul says that we are children of God. Paul refers to God as our father in this opening address. And this speaks to a couple different things. Number one, we receive unconditional love from our father. Now, I realize that there are people in this room who did not receive unconditional love from your father. You had a poor example 
of what a good father should look like. And maybe your father was absent or abusive or didn't, uh, didn't ever tell you he loved you, didn't ever tell you he was proud of you. But a good father loves his children unconditionally. And there's no better representation of a good father than the one that Jesus shares in Luke chapter 15. In the story of the prodigal son, Jesus says that our heavenly father is a dad who waits expectantly for his lost kids to come home. Every day he would have looked out over the horizon and waited for the shadow of his son to come over the hill. He would have been waiting expectantly for his kid to come home. And when he does finally see his kid, he races towards him with open arms and he forgives him freely. And he says, he says, get the ring and the robe and, and, and put my son back where he was, reestablish my son where he was. A good father is one who loves his kids unconditionally. Do you understand that every person is so desperate to be loved and to belong? It is a cry in all of our hearts. It is an ache in every one of our hearts. We do the craziest things for love, don't we? We do the craziest things to belong. We jump off of heights because somebody dared us and we just want to be part of the group. We try that new thing because somebody tells us to. We just want to belong. Right? We do the craziest things for love. We write sappy love letters to our girlfriends because we love them. But when you're confident that you're loved unconditionally, you no longer need man's approval. You don't need man's approval. You're free. When you know you're loved unconditionally, you're free to stop searching desperately for love and to start sharing the love of the Father with others. So often people are cruel to one another because they're looking for something. They're looking for that unconditional love, that unconditional acceptance that that God only gives. But when you know that you're loved unconditionally, you don't have to worry about yourself anymore. You take your eyes off yourself and you start sharing the love of the Father with people because you have all the love you need. You're being loved by your Father. A father loves unconditionally. A father also protects and provides. We receive protection and provision from our father. And Jesus tells us that God knows all of our needs. And if we seek the kingdom of heaven first, the rest of our needs will be taken care of. All of our desires, all of the, all the things that we know that we need, not, not, not the fancy new car or the things that we want, but God knows what you need and he will take care of you. He protects and he provides. When God is your protector and your provider, you don't ever have to be afraid. Guess how many times the phrase, do not be afraid, is written in Scripture? Does anybody know? 365 times. That's one for every day of the year. And it should be a daily reminder that your dad has got your back. Don't be afraid today. When you wake up, you can hear God's voice saying, don't be afraid today. I've got your back. I know what you need. I'll be your protector. I'll be your provider. Just rest in me. You don't have to be afraid. God is our protector and our provider. It's also from our heavenly father, we receive an inheritance. God is a generational father. He's not just the God of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac and Jacob as well. Because he wants his blessing to continue to your kids and to their kids and to their kids. He wants to share 
his, the, the blessing of his salvation with generations to come. Yes, God originally chose Abraham's family to bless. But his desire always was to adopt you and I into his family. And we share in Israel's inheritance. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6 says, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. We share an inheritance from our Father. And Paul, when he writes in this opening address to this church in Ephesus, he says, hey, I want you to know, first and foremost, that you're not supposed to be like everyone else. You're set apart. You're a holy people. I want you to know that you're seated with Christ in heavenly places. You are in Christ. You have access to the things that Jesus has access to. And he says, I want you to know that you're children of God. He loves you unconditionally. He's going to protect you and provide for you. And you have an inheritance to look forward to. God has given you an inheritance. Remember, this is who you are. It's the foundation of who you are. As we close, I'm going to ask Mary to come up. Remember what we said in the beginning. God cares far more about who you are becoming than what you can do for him. Yes, baby, you too. He cares more about you. Identity comes first. And Paul wants the church to know we've been set apart. We have access to what Jesus has access to. And we're children of God. And as we begin this journey through the book of Ephesians, I'd like us to keep in mind, as we start this journey, I want to look to the end. I want to look at what the Apostle John says to the church in Ephesus at the very end of Scripture, in the book of Revelation. He wrote this to the church in Ephesus. This is God speaking through John in Revelation chapter 2. Verses 1 through 5. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says to this to the church, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. He says, well done, you do. You know how to do. I've seen what you do. I know your deeds. You do good things. But then he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do do the things that you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you. And remove your lampstand from its place. Let me paraphrase what God is saying to the church. He says, I know your deeds. You did a lot of great things. You came to church regularly. You served with his helping hands. You volunteered in the community. You read your Bible. You prayed. You did a lot of really good things. I saw your deeds. But here's where you went wrong, church. You forgot who you are. You've forsaken your first love. You made the things you did more important than the love that God is growing within you. Repent and go back to the start. Do what you did at first. I'm more concerned 
about who you are becoming. I want that first love to be there. I want the foundation of your identity to be there, that you are a child of God. I love you. And this is what's most important. It's more important than what you do for me. Remember who you are. Go back to the start. Would you stand with me? Maybe you're here this morning and you need to go back to the start. Maybe you're here this morning and you you resonate with that, that word of the Lord in Revelation that I've forgotten my first love. Where's the joy of my salvation? Where's the love that I had at first? Where did I leave that? Where did I drop that? If that's you, I want you to have a moment with the Lord this morning. But everyone in this room, just close your eyes. Let's have a moment with the Holy Spirit where we fix our eyes back onto Him and we ask Him to restore to us the love that we had at first. Jesus, we get caught up doing the things that maybe make us feel good or maybe maybe these good things make us feel like we're earning more of your favor. We're earning more of your love. And we forget that your love for us is a gift that's undeserved and unearned. And there is nothing we can do to get more of it There's nothing we can do to get less of it. Jesus, you love us because we're yours. And we're grateful for that. Father, I pray that our identities would be the foundation of what we do. Who we are would be the foundation of what we do. That that as we do things for your kingdom, it would be from the right place, the right motives understanding that we are your kids and we're trying to share that love with other people around us. And Father, I pray for the hearts in this room who need to experience your love, who need a a refreshing, who need a, a fresh wind of God to blow on their lives this morning, to remind them of who they are. Holy Spirit, come. If that's you, if you want to go back to the start, would you raise your hands right now? Just lift them up. Say, I want to go back to the start. I want to be refreshed. I want the Spirit of God to blow once again in my life for the joy of my salvation to return, to be reminded of who I am, that God cares far more about who I'm becoming than what I can offer to Him. And when I fall short, of my own standards, when I fall short of the, of the things that I, I'm trying to do, I can still know that I'm loved unconditionally. So Father, you see the hands that are up. God, you see the people who are hungry for more of your spirit. Blow fresh on them right now in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, come in power. Holy Spirit, come and fill us up. remain here for a moment. Just keep your eyes closed. Remain here for a moment. Thank you, Jesus. I 
a sense that there are maybe a couple people in this room who you feel maybe like your dream, whatever God has placed on your heart, maybe you feel like there's a dream that God placed on your heart that died suddenly. The doors were closed. Maybe you feel like you reached a certain age and now those opportunities aren't there, but you feel like the best is behind you. That it's only just going to get worse. I just hear the voice of the Lord saying, if you remain in me, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. The dreams are not dead. I am still using you. I still desire to move in your life. I still desire to use you to impact the people around you. Don't for a second think that I'm done and I've benched you or I've put you on the shelf. You are mine and I will always use you. As long as you have breath in your lungs, I will be using you. I also sense that there are people in this room uh, that God is giving you more land. I, I just get this picture of a field, uh, of, a, of a big field, but only a portion of it has seeds in it. And God is saying, I'm tilling up the rest of this land so that you can plant more seeds. I'm, I'm expanding, I'm expanding you. I'm expanding your giftings. I'm expanding uh, the things that I want to do in your life. If you, if you receive that, just say amen. God, do more. Expand in me what you need to grow. And at the same time, he's pulling out weeds. It's hard work. Weeding a field and getting it ready for things to grow, it's hard work. Sometimes weeds have to be pulled. Sometimes it's painful. But God says, hold out. Stay in those seasons. And when, when you sense pain, when you sense when you sense that you're uncomfortable, just know that I'm doing something in your life right now. I'm pulling weeds out and stay in that season. Don't be afraid. But I want to grow. I want to grow what I'm doing inside of you. Father, I thank you. I just pray that, Lord, we would leave this place with a profound understanding of who we are in you. And we love you, Jesus. If you agree with that, would you say amen? Amen. I love you, church. And uh, we'll see you next week as we continue in the book of Ephesians. We're going to start Grow Class in about 10 minutes. So I'll see you in there if you're coming to Grow Class.